But that is the one because we got to talking about the millennium, and I told you that I had the I think it's about seventy-three uh, verses from the New Testament. To you just read it and say to yourself, who is describing? Is it describing the nation of Israel or what? And that'll be a helpful platform for you. <clears throat> but a week ago we was our first time coming back to our study in First Thessalonians, and we. Uh, in chapter 5, because for way back a bit, we finished up chapter 4, and we're in chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. But before we want to look at the passage in an exegetical way of looking at it verse by verse, uh, we said that we're trying going to start giving you some stuff about eschatology, and the only reason is so that you can really understand the day of the Lord. That's why, and that's what uh, Paul is dealing with here. He, if, if you remember, we said that Paul had, was with the Thessalonians when we first started out. He was with them for three Sabbaths. Some believe that was three consecutive Saturdays. Others believe that it was about four and a half months with different Sabbaths that Israel uh, practiced and participated in. Uh, with all of the Theology and doctrine that he had given them in those three Sabbaths, it seemed like that, that, that view of the four and a half months would fit better. Not, don't have to, because uh, God's word is inspired. He was uh, actually giving them what we now have. And, and so either way, a view that you may come to from your studies, uh, we know for sure it was three Sabbaths that he was there. But in that time... He taught them that the Lord <clears throat> was going to come and receive the people, uh, at, gather the believers together. That would be a gathering together. And so his, <clears throat> he, he, he knew he needed to get them established. And to do that, you, you just read through the book cursively, and you can see that uh, a lot, a lot was done. Matter of fact, let's just go back to Acts um, 17 and, and put that down into your mind because I'm going to read a portion of, of uh, 1 Thessalonians 3 and, and, to, and to see what Paul said he says for in fact we told you before when we were with you so that's that period of time that we were talking about he was with them he says I told you before and that I was there the things that I'm writing to you about, I, I told you. Now, we had already saw and will repeat that he had not taught them about what we know as the rapture, but he, he gave them, and we'll see the reasons for that. But in Acts 17, <clears throat> he, he really founded the church there. So, uh, what, what few verses? A few verses there. Let me go there. Verse 1, <clears throat> now when they had passed, and, now, and it's interesting because in 16, we, where we saw Philippi, Luke says we. He, he enters that we in, and now he's saying they. Uh, when, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths, 
reason with them from the scriptures explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace. I think the King James says some of the baser sort of men. Boy, that's describing them. And gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out up to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the, of, to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, there's another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now, I hesitated on that taking security. Because I believe it's uh, Hebrew, the Yemen Hebrews uses this to say why Paul couldn't come back. Uh, was because he had taken a bond that if they didn't kill Jason, he would not come back. And then if you remember when we was in chapter 2, we talked about how the, the, the false teachers, they were using that. And they was indicting Paul of not loving the uh, Thessalonians. And that's why he had not come back. And then Paul defends that. And then in chapter 3. Paul gave that re how he was feeling and why he sent when he sent Timothy back. The reason he sent Timothy back was he was concerned. Well, the one I don't know those three Sabbaths, how many day that maybe they gave up. They was under persecution. He had to run. And so maybe they had just given up. Maybe the church didn't exist no more. So he sent Timothy back to find out how they were doing. And when Timothy got back. Timothy said to him, basically, man, those guys are great. They are, they are elect. And you just read chapter 1 and you go through what he, well, all that he gave of them. They was a solid church. And so Paul says in chapter 3 that that gave me life. I began to rejoice in knowing that. And then out of that, it was clear that a, two, at least two questions had Arise. And, and, and Timothy was now explained, had explained to him that they had these questions. And the two questions, number one, Paul had taught them about the gathering of the body, a gathering of all the saints. But he had not taught what would happen if they died. So now just imagine how excited you would be. And they wasn't expecting 2,000 years. They was expecting him any day in their time. But then some died before that. In each chapter of First Thessalonians, you might not remember, it's been a while since we've been in chapter. We went through and showed that in each chapter, he speaks about the second coming of Jesus Christ and the pulling together of his people. Example, in chapter 1, verse 10, he says, well, that's the way he talked about how they were saved and the, and the non-believers was talking about how they were saved. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from wrath to come. 219, for what is our hope or joy or rejoicing? It is not even, is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? 
313, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Uh, 416, that, see, with that one we know he answers, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And in 523, he's going to say, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they were excited about the Lord coming. And they really, really was looking for him to come in their day. But all of a sudden, some of them die. You, can, you know, if you can put yourself in that position. We are here. We are waiting on Christ. We're expecting Christ. We know that if he come and gather us all together. But then Don dies. And he hasn't got here. And I don't know what's going to happen. So that was a serious question. We answered that in chapter 4. That is where 413. I don't want you to be uninformed. And he goes through all the way to verse 18. And he went through and talked what we call the rapture. Don't worry about those who are dead. If they believed in Christ, they will come with him. When he comes, they will come. If you die, you're going to, and those who are dead in Christ will rise first. So he, he answers that question. And then he's coming to chapter 5. And he's going to answer the second question. And that's what we are building a case to answer through those verses. And they was worried about are we now in the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is a wrathful of God's wrath, and he always brings a blessing behind that for the people that he maintained. So he says to, uh, to, to them and to us by proxy out into time that, that you can't be in the day of the Lord. That's his answer in the first two verses. He says, I don't even need to tell you about that because you already know that perfectly. I taught, he, he had to have taught on that. They had the Old Testament be already about the day of the Lord. And he's saying, I don't even need to say anything about that. You know it adequately. That, and, 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 but so we'll look at that day of the Lord. And we're saying, okay, what is, what is this message? I, did, I, I think if I didn't say it, I, I, I'm sorry. But all because this, these passages have become real eschatological arguments within the church. These passages address some eschatology, but they are pastoral. He's comforting their hearts. And he, in each section, would say, comfort one another. So that's, that's what it, it is not... Uh, not saying it doesn't know eschatologists here because it is, but that is not the purpose. The purpose of it is to comfort the heart, give comfort and encouragement in facing, facing trials and in difficulty. When you're in the midst of it, they were in midst of massive trouble. They are one of the Macedonian churches. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8, I believe it is, I mean. Come, come, come. <clears throat> yes, 8-1. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. That includes the church of Thessalonica. He says that in a great trial of affliction, 
the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. So they are poor, they are poverty, and, and, and not only poor, they are under great afflictions. I mean, a great trial is, is very difficult. And it's to them he is writing comfort. And it's an, it's a, you think about it, you take John 14, 1 Corinthians 15, and 1 Thessalonians 4. Each scenario, each case, they are facing doubt, discouragement, despondency, and he tells that them what they, how to have comfort. Look at the Lord Jesus Christ who's going to come back for you and, and anchor your rest in him and your hope will rise. And, and, and that's what he's doing to, these, to this, this church. He's saying, don't, don't be saddened like those who don't have any hope. You, they, your, your, beloved, your beloved ones died in faith. They died in Christ and they will be raised again. And, and, and justifiably, they had a reason, and they did. I, I believe the scripture is clear that they, their, their hope was waning. For example, look at chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, and then look at chapter, we're going to look at chapter 3, verse 68. Verse 1, uh, verse 3, I mean, of chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians. Paul says, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope in Lord Jesus Christ. That's important to pay attention to. Because he's saying that what Timothy said, even, this is what they were doing. They was, this, is, this is who they were. They, had, they was laboring, they had love, and they had hope. But then in chapter 3, verse 6 to 8, it says, chapter 3, verse 6, But now that Timothy has come to us from and brought a, us good news of your faith, and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we are comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we are living it up, guys, if you stand fast in your faith. But what to notice is he said, Timothy came back, he told us, he gave us good news about your faith and love. He did not say hope. And chapter one is faith, hope, and love. And the love was waning. I mean, their hope was waning. And understandably, if you have a loved one that's dead and gone, and you know that there's going to come a great gathering, but they're not here to be a part of it, and you don't know about the rapture, you would lose hope because you don't see no hope for them. And so Paul answered that question. And he, about this great gathering, he says, no, you're going to be there. And that was chapter 4, verse 13 through 18 for certain. The whole, but that section really did. And the second uh, thing that had them wondering and asking questions was, are we, Paul, living in the day of the Lord? And Paul answers that in chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 11. And I'm going to read all of it. Mm -hmm. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the light, of light and sons of the day. We are not 
of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Say, boy, he didn't know Americans, did he? <laughs> Verse 8, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, day of the Lord, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whatever we, whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, again, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. This is a great church. I don't know why I always say little church, but it is. They are doing everything. They are working to one another. Just, as you re, just read through the chapter first of Thessalonians cursively over and over for a bit, and you'll see just how faithful they are. So what we've been trying to do is show that he, he's answering and, and answering the question whether they were in the day of the Lord. And in doing that, uh, Paul, Paul does answer it, and we're going to see that. And last time we were... Took a brief look. Uh, Mark put that graph up. We could see that graph. And that was what that um, thing came out about Israel. Uh, in, uh, Jews to Israel. Because as we looked at them, I read each one. I'm not going to read. Re no, I don't have that on. I might better. Well, that, we said there was four views of the millennium. Millennium is 1,000, that's what it means, 1,000 years, 1,000, what it means. Uh, we can see from scripture that it's 1,000 years that it speak about. We read Revelation 20, 1 through 10, and that was clear. I think it was uh, four, five, six times maybe that he used the, 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 the uh, word in there. So, so we know that it is uh, a million, uh, th not a million, please forgive me for that. <laughs> it's 1,000 years, and we know it's years. Um, if you really want to understand the intent of an author, you want to understand not what they said, why they said it, and, and how, they, how they meant it. And, and we have to find that out. And so when it comes to those numbers, uh, for my own saying, I've said, I need to, if, if John is talking about anything other than a thousand years, I need to understand how John uses numbers. Because if he's using numbers a different way, it might be. But John always used numbers the same way we use the numbers. He said that there are seven churches. We can take the map and point at each one of them, and it is seven. So we can see. He says there's 12 tribes uh, and times 12 tribes because 12 tribes, and each one got 12,000. You look through that. You, you multiply that. You get 144. So he used numbers the exact same way that we use numbers. And so if he says it's 1,000 years, that 1,000 years has a beginning and it has an end, that's a thousand years, no matter how we, we look at it. And we said that uh, our millennialism, I'm going to scan this a little bit, and I, I, I'm sorry I, I, sh I should have included them with that, but I didn't. But our millennialism teaches that the church is now spiritual Israel. That's, one, that's what came out, and I said I had those things, and I didn't get but I, You can go through there, because there are some very good Bible teachers who will say this is the spiritual, especially using Galatians 6.16. Uh, it's uh, three verses that they use. The other two don't come to mind right off top. But Galatians 16 is the, is the one that, that it is. It, it, and, and, and even in that, I think I was talking with Pastor Fier, and 
three of the best scholars that believe this disagree on Galatians 6.16. So, but if we can see that Galatians 6.16 is not saying that that is, that that is an answer to the church, then uh, amillennialism foundation becomes really shaky at best. They believe this is a spirit, that they were spiritual Israel. As a result, they inherit God, they, it, that spiritual Israel inherited God's promises to Abraham and David, which was forfeited, forfeited, I mean, by Israel because of continued disobedience. And that's a thread that, that, that goes on. Postmillennialism teaches that the kingdom of God is, is being advanced, currently being advanced, with increasing triumph in the world through the gospel preaching and the ministry of the church. What is interesting about postmillennialism? After World War II, it basically lost, and it's amazing how it's made, been making a comeback, but it lost that because it was saying, we are going to make the world better, and that, that, that's, that's, not, that's not happening. Historic premillennialism teaches that Christ will return to rapture the church, that judge the living unbelievers, and set up an earthly kingdom. Some of them say it's a thousand years. Others believe that it's a long period of time and just a symbolic number. Uh, they believe Christ now rules over a millennium where very little distinction is made between the church and restored national Israel. At the end of the millennium, there is a resurrection of unbelievers and the final judgment, which is followed by the eternal state. Uh, this category of premillennialism, which is historic premillennialism, generally, not, not, not speaking to everybody always, but generally interprets Revelation chapter 6, verse 18 as historic, in a historic sense, rather than looking at it future, wherein futuristic premillennialism, uh, many times you, you find it in, it's, it would just say, dispensational, and, and I, we, we agree with so many things, but I, I prefer the futuristic premillennialism. It is a millennial going to be. It is in the future, specifically and definitely on that. And, and it's, found, it's established because, quote, use of consistent grammatical historical approach to both the Old and the New Testament scriptures by which the Bible is interpreted normally throughout, regardless of whether it is eschatological or non-eschatological still uses the literal interpretation. Uh, a, a simple illustration and answer to that is uh, 1 Peter 3, 8, 9. He talks about a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. The as tells us that that's figurative speech, but that thousand is still literal. That number is still literal. So we see no matter what it is, we're looking at it. And so they say, therefore, God's promises to Abraham and David are viewed in, the, in, in light of futuristic sense. That is, we believe all that God promised to the nation of Israel is going to happen to the nation of Israel in the future. They will be restored. God made that promise to them. Uh, the new covenant, Pastor Pierre did an excellent job in Sunday school on that. And that the new covenant was given to Israel. We are we, we, we take blessings from it, but it was given to them. I mean, it really says uh, that I'm giving you, and at that time, 
you will not break, Israel will not break this covenant as your fathers did when they came out of Egypt. So that's specifically and strictly the nation of Israel. They are coming. And so as a futuristic premillennialist, it says, uh, Alpha, let me find this, in, the, in this pattern, that is in the pattern that the nation is going to be restored. In this pattern, the rapture comes first. It can be four views, pre-tribulational, mid-tribulational, pre-wrath tribulation. I had that book, too. I was going to bring to show you uh, a book that, that really, this, this view was born in the mid to late 80s. It's very, very young, if you will, but it was the pre-wrath tribulation or post-tribulation. And if you're really, really interested in, get, have any interest in the uh, pre-wrath view, uh, the, the best book that I, is, is, but where's Rennie's name? Renal Showers. Rennie, Renal Showers has a book where he critiques the pre-wrath view. And so he gives, takes the pre-wrath view and look at it in, in comparison and, and really, really does an excellent job on it. It's a great book. Fortunately, mine is in storage. Uh, but I'm thanking the Lord for Mark, Stair, and Doug, who's going to put some shelves up. Uh, that I can get them out of there. But then <clears throat> continuing, it says, following the rapture, Christ's second coming at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, the day of, day of the Lord, wrath that he's been talking about. He says, biblically, this is Daniel's 70th week prophecy as it's described theologically. After judging the earth and its inhabitants, Christ rules over the earth for 1,000 years from his Davidic throne in Jerusalem. The last few uh, Sunday schools, if you weren't here, I urge you to just go back and really listen at that whole, whole section because it really, really puts it uh, in, in, in proper perspective. When it comes to the Davidic throne, that is the throne that God prophesied promised that the Lord Jesus would sit on. Now, there are many wonderful brothers say that he's already on that throne. But Revelation chapter 3, uh, I, I, I take contention at that point, and this is uh, 321. Twenty one <clears throat> to him who overcomes. This is that overcoming that he gives to if in that bad church. And you here he says to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So this not the same throne. He said he, he, he when he died and paid the debt for sin, was raised and ascended back. He sit with the Father on his throne, but the day is coming when he will sit on the Davidic throne, his throne in Jerusalem, and he will rule the world from there. And that is basically what we believe. I left out the fact that then we believe that a great white throne judgment take place. That's where all non-believers throughout human history will stand before the Lord 
and they will be cast into the lake of fire uh, with the false prophet, with, say, all those who are burning, which, which is, uh, becomes an interesting thing to me. I have no answers, so to, um, but, but it's interesting to me that he says that uh, the sea is going to give up the dead, and Hades is going to give up the dead, and Hades is going to be cast into the lake of fire. That, that, that really, really interests me because he's saying, in my understanding, Hades is a temporary stopping place to punish non-believers, but non-believers will be raised before the great white throne judgment. Hades will be cast into the lake of fire, and they will be cast into the lake of fire, which burns and, with, and does no stop. So, so it's really interest, interesting to me is, you know, that's an entity. Because an entity has to be, be cast. And what is interesting, also interesting to me about Hades is, in, I think it's Isaiah or Jeremiah talks about hell has broadened itself. Well, if Hades is an entity, how does it broaden itself? Well, it says in Ephesians 4, Psalm 69, but Paul takes it in Ephesians 4 and talks about he descended and he ascended and he took captivity with him. That would be the believers who are in, as Jesus gave that parable about the compartments of Hades. You've got the, the rich man in torment. You've got Lazarus in there. And neither can cross. But when he descended, and, and it's interesting, it, it says proclaim. But the word that's proclaimed there is the word, not, not the word for preaching. It's the word to announcing. He was announcing to them I am he that you believed in, and he ascended, as the psalmist said in 69, pretty sure 69. And then Paul uses in Ephesians 4 that he led captivity captive. What is really interesting is that historically, I believe it's Erdesheim who talks about how when the Jewish um, king went to battle, and Jews who had, were in captivity, those who, the, the army, the, whoever, the Philistines or whoever, if they had them in prison, as we would call it, the prison camp, then that king would release them, but he didn't turn them all loose. They was in chain. And he would ride them back to Jerusalem, ride them through the city, and I mean, promote, parade them through the city, go up to the top of the mount, and up there would release them. And, and it takes that, that's, and, and if it's Erdesheim, I think it's Psalm 69, but then that is what Paul takes in Ephesians 4. Uh, he descended, he ascended, and with him he led captivity captive. If, if from the Jews, the captivity would be Jews, and he took them out of captivity and led them and released them to go. And so Christ, when he left, uh, I can see how hell can broaden itself because that compartment is no longer a compartment. He who died now without Christ goes to Hades, period, Hades, and wait for the great white throne. Oh, man, I'm over. Great white throne judgment. And real, real quick, boy, that thing, real quick, uh, I, I, the, Pastor Pierre have a chart that I'm going to get from him for the next time. And also, we can, I'm going to plug in the rapture. But we can look, look at four views of the rapture. That, now, the rapture, everyone, I shouldn't say everyone, but most who believe in the rapture, uh, a true rapture, they also, they, they have a view. They, they, they may be a, a post-millennialist, and, and they can believe in that. But, but the rapture, basically pre-millennialist, every pre-mill person believe in one view or uh, another in its four views, post-trip, that is, Christ comes after the tribulation, mid-trip, 
He comes in the middle of the tribulation, the pre-wrath trip, which is new, fairly new, the pre-wrath trip. He comes about the last 75 days of the great tribulation and pre-trip. He comes before the tribulation, great tribulation period. So we'll look at that and then we'll look at the day of the Lord as we, we look. And that's where we really see Israel is Israel and the church is the church and, and just so many things. That, that, that contrast you see in scripture. And one of the best for me of practically and just there, if Israel replaced the church, the church cannot exist simultaneously with Israel. And in scripture it does. And so there, there has to be a distinction. We find Israel throughout and then we find the church in that same time that there is Israel. And, and, and so they, they can't be separate, two entities, and be the same thing. That's just impossible. But we'll look at some of that. Amen. And, and on that sheet, uh, just for your clarity, because this is, this, this is a big controversy within evangelicalism. Take that sheet and just go through and see Israel and see if he's talking about the nation of Israel or any other pers person of thing to be the nation to be that Israel and 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 you, you will see in there that Israel is Israel uh, Romans 9 Israel is and Pastor Peter done an excellent job within Israel he says all Israel is not Israel clear now now he's talking and saying all of the Hebrew people in the lineage of Abraham are not God's people and it never was a, intended to be that way. And he uses about four illustrations in there. I think it's four. He used those illustrations to show that God never intended this. He chose one and he didn't choose the other because he never intended all the Israelites to be saved. He, but he saved all those whom he made. And just go through Jacob. He, and, and it's really interesting to me when he talks about those futuristic promises, when he say Jacob. Because the argument for the, those who believe that the uh, work grace, the covenant of grace and all those tie them in before and then just picks up uh, chapter 12 of Genesis. Uh, when they say everything is Abraham, Abraham. But when he say Jacob and tied in there, that's, that's a big change because it is the same thing from Abraham, but it's not Abraham. That's Jacob. And Jacob is the, where the nation of Israel come from. So Israel is Israel, the church is the church, and um, Matthew 16, right? Where he says, upon this rock I will build my church. I will build. I'll, in the future, I will do, I'm going to build my church. And so we can, we can see that the church, uh, we don't have all of Israel's cursing, and we can't have all of Israel's blessing. Those are promises to Israel. God has to do that, or God is not trustworthy if God is not trustworthy, we might as well just shut up the doors and close the shop. You know, but God is faithful, and he's going to keep his word. Father, we again thank you for this time that we have that we can gather, and especially that as we gather, Lord, there's no laws that we are breaking. We know that that is from your good hand. Lord, you are enabling us to enjoy and rejoice in some of the blessings that our, many of our forefathers in America lost their lives to stand for. Lord, we're thankful for this great opportunity. But Lord, 
let it not slip from us that to him that is given much, much is required. Lord, we have a great responsibility. Pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would cause us to recognize that and be intentional about being found faithful by the strength of your own Holy Spirit and your grace. Lord, that we might know your truth, not to be able to win arguments, but Lord, to know you and to be more able to give a reason for why we have the hope that we have. That we can, in a, in a clear way, stand for your truth lovingly and contently. So grant to us the grace to not just understand, but the grace to appropriate to our lives. And that it may impact those in the spheres of our influence. For Christ's sake, in his name we pray. Amen.